Are you curious about, interested in, or working within the field of anesthesiology and you are a woman, person of color, or otherwise do not fit the stereotypical image of what an anesthesiologist looks like, then this is the podcast for you. We will discuss what life is like on the other side of the blue drape for us. Issues most relevant, such as what is anesthesia really? And we're not talking textbook definition. Tips for applying, success in residency, life as an attending, and beyond. Join us each week as we take a dive into this rich and often misunderstood field. This is your host, Dr. Alicia Peterson, and welcome to Sivo Sisters. Welcome back, y'all, to Sivo Sisters, where we demystify and diversify the field of anesthesiology all within the duration of an anesthesia break. This week, we'll talk about going from a place of familiarity to a place very different, that experience of being othered and the steps you need to take to make it through this medical journey. We'll discuss with Dr. Odie Ahi, an associate professor at UCSF. Please enjoy. Thank you all for joining us. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce Dr. Odie Ahi. Big shout out to uh, Dr. Mana Agos for actually making the recommendation when we were at the anime conference. She was like, you need to have her on your podcast. And I was like, yes, I do. Thank you for the reminder. <laughs> if you don't know Dr. Ahi, she is a pediatric anesthesiologist at UCSF who went to University of Wisconsin for medical school, did anesthesiology residency at NYU, then went to Stanford for her Peds Anesthesia Fellowship. Since then, she's been at UCSF and doing a lot of work in regards to pathway programs. And then she's the vice chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion and is working a lot in global health. We're discussing a bit offline about how you see this bio, you see how sparkling and sterling it is. And Many people think, well, I can't. I mean, that's her. She's a rock star. I couldn't do what she mm-hmm. did. So we want to pull the drape down and show what what has that journey been? What has the challenges been? Because you don't get to that place without going through something, uh, especially as a woman of color in this field. First and foremost, thank you so much for that lovely introduction. When I do these type of talks, I always talk about the obstacles that were definitely faced in the whole pathway to, to I'm sure all of us are facing and still face to this day when we think about our career in medicine. When I was thinking about applying to medical school, I had major anxiety, major imposter syndrome, probably like a lot of people wasn't even sure if I was going to get in. I am a pipeline pathway baby where I did those pathway programs and those programs were really galvanizing my motivation so that I could actually feel like I could apply to some of these medical school programs. I am a very, very proud grad of Xavier University, a historically Black university in New Orleans. That experience was also influential in making me feel that I could be a physician. Xavier University, I'm going to go ahead and put a shout out, is known for putting the most Black physicians out there and getting folks matriculated into medical school by being a lot around a lot of people who were interested in going to medical school 
and felt like that they had the confidence and they really felt like they had the support. And I felt like I had the support. That really plays a huge role. But what about for folks who don't go to these programs that really are focused in supporting those who want to go into medicine? Well, again, I think being exposed to pathway programs, getting the space for mentorship, sponsorship, this played a huge role down the road for me. I'll tell, tell you a little bit of a story about that down the road. And so that was really influential. Um, I'm the first in my family, in my immediate family to go to medicine. I have a cousin who is in Canada who was, I think, the first in the family to be a medical physician. So definitely I'm of the generation where we didn't have anyone beforehand who had done it. We were really kind of just pioneering the area of how do we do what we do without knowing who has been in this pathway to ask questions. And we're figuring it out as we're going along. We really are. I mean, there's not a region of the U.S. that you haven't touched. Uh, you know, where is your family from? Where are you? <laughs> where did you grow up? <laughs> I was born in Montgomery, Alabama, went to college in New Orleans. My family is uh, from Nigeria. They immigrated to Montgomery, Alabama a couple of years before I was born. And then for a four-year segment, um, we did go back to Lagos, Nigeria, my mom and my siblings, because of her mom was sick. But then we came back in 1990 and have been since at Montgomery, Alabama until I graduated high school, went to college in New Orleans. Again, you know, when thinking about which college to go to, to me, I already had some interest in wanting to be a physician. It just, and New Orleans just made the most sense in feeling like I was going to go to a place where um, I felt like I was going to have the most support. After going to college in New Orleans, I ended up going to University of Wisconsin-Madison. I had this mentality that I have been in the South most of my life outside of being in Nigeria, I wanted to try something new. Coming to Madison, Wisconsin was really more about having a second look that is existed that was really doing a great job of recruiting folks who are underrepresented in medicine to come out there. So second look works. Having a diversity second look where you have other recipients and other candidates who are potential matriculants come and see what your program potentially could look like and see what, who their fellow classmates could potentially look like makes a huge difference. So I went off to Madison, Wisconsin, but let me tell you that I was not prepared for being in a class of 160 people where there were only eight Black people. I had felt like I'd been sheltered for so long by being in the South and being in the HBCU. Don't get it twisted. You still feel the unforeseen events of being and living in the South, and especially in the Southeast. I'll say that. There's no veil that is in front of your eyes. You kind of know what's going on. My family also, though, by being Nigerian immigrants, they're not the ones who come and immigrate to this this country and then read about historically what's happened. And so a lot of that history for me happened more by going to an HBCU and understanding because you as a little child, as a 10 year old, you understand that there's a separation. You understand that something's different, but not having anyone explain why is it different? Why am I getting these subliminal messages where I'm hearing from one side from my family saying that I can make it and I should strive. And you're getting other implicit messages, whether it's from school teachers, whether it's from the surrounding environment, 
making you feel that, well, actually, are you able to make it? Are you good enough? That piece of the puzzle was really, it's, it was hard to get a complete picture until I went off to college and in HBCUs, at least at Xavier, they mandate that you do take at least a year of African-American studies. And there were literally I's getting dotted and T's getting crossed. And I had these major epiphanies of, oh my gosh, I never got this history by going to junior high and high school in Montgomery, Alabama. They did not speak about these events. You, do, you see the manifestations of it, but why is it that you don't know? Why is it that you have certain people who are matriculating at a different rate than others into either college or other professions and how that actually manifests in the neighborhoods and the resources that are available to you? So from a very early age, I was always just confused, even though I saw. By being in the South for as long as I had, I wanted to go some, to somewhere different. And I was able to get into University of Wisconsin-Madison. They had a second look. I had that opportunity. I saw the matriculants that potentially were going to be coming. But gosh, man, the first day of medical school was a trip. Because again, you have 160 students and you are eight. You were one of eight. And that level of imposter syndrome is going to hit you like no other when all of a sudden the reality of just how many people look like you who are going down the pathway that you want to go to is how that is not reflective of what you had previously seen by going to an HBCU and living in the Southeast. Though, again, you were constantly getting implicit messages of how things are supposed to play out. I struggled. Are you internalizing some of those messages of, can you really cut it or will you make it? Um, There was certainly some internalization of it where if you already feel that you aren't good enough, you tend to also underperform in certain ways. But then there was external messaging. The microaggression is meant intentionally or unintentionally the impact. Oh my gosh. Oh, you're going to medical school? Oh, you... You, you are going where? Oh, where do, where do you come from? Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, your English is so good. There were many, many different forms yeah. and levels of subliminal messages being sent that mm-hmm. constantly are sent to folks from marginalized backgrounds. And so that certainly played an impact or played a role when you go get into medical school. And sometimes there, even from your peer classmates, there is a notion that you're only here because, Mm -hmm. right? Versus you, of course, are here and you're smart enough. There's the grouping of, oh, you're here because. I definitely struggled. No one really speaks about for folks who get into medical school is I felt very sheltered that I didn't live around people who were very wealthy, right? There's one thing when you don't know that you're wealthy, you're living around everyone else who's not wealthy. So you don't know. And then you go to medical school. And the reality is that most of those students that were in my class, at least, came from very privileged backgrounds. Their parents were physicians or they knew someone that was a physician. There were folks who didn't have to get loans because if they had parents that were either funding the loans or paying for it, you then feel like that sense of othering really then starts to become real. Not not only do you have this sense of epiphany that you are one of the very few, you have a layered sense of, 
oh, I don't belong because maybe I'm not intelligent enough. And then another layer sense that, oh my gosh, I'm from a very different social class than most of my classmates. And that also plays a full role into whether you belong or not as well. Paper backs up your experience of how the majority of medical school matriculates do come from very privileged and high socioeconomic statuses, which when that paper came out, and I remember it was posted on Twitter, everybody was like, well, yeah, duh. Process to getting into medical school, it has high amount of fees as far as applications, paying for exams. Oftentimes you need courses to help prepare you for these exams, all of which are in the thousands of dollars. Uh, And then if you take out a loan, it's with the expectation that you can pay it. And then if you can't, at least you have somebody you could turn to who could. And a lot of blacks and browns don't have that and don't want to carry that kind of debt. Yeah, it's set up to be made for those who are of high socioeconomic status. I'm curious as to how that came into your purview. Because when you think of a medical student, everybody's got their textbooks highlighting in the dorms or wherever you are. How did you get hit in the face with, oh, wow, these people have money? By seeing the level of social support that they received in medical school, merely by socializing with medical students from different groups and starting to get this aha moment, like, oh gosh, I am definitely othered by the lack of social support that I'm getting versus what I'm seeing other students get. That played a huge role in my mental well-being and my ability to feel like I wanted to continue to perform in medical school. So yes, I'd gotten there, but then there are many times that I questioned, am I even going to make it through this? I, I don't have the support. I feel very isolated. I feel very alone. There's a lot of people who are depending on me. That's a lot of pressure when you're first in your family. There's that sense of othering, but there's just also that sense of weight and that burden that you are working through on top of what my dean of medical school at that time had said, which is that medical school is going to feel like you're trying to take a sip of water from a fire hydrant. So brace yourself and good luck. On top of that stress, the other components, the other social components playing in. You clearly made it through. What are those gems that you have for us on how to make it through when you have layers and layers? I would say. And yeah. yeah, the other thing I wanted to say is that I wanted to drop out of medical school, did not actually apply for an anesthesia residency. I was convinced by other peers to at least finish the medical school year, get your, at least get the MD degree when I was finally at a standstill and thinking, I'm, well, I'm not going to do a residency. I think I'm done with medicine. One of the pathway programs that I had done, which was in New York, I reached out to one of the program coordinators who really does a fantastic job of keeping connected with all the alumni. And I just thought, you know what? I would love to go to New York City and at least live there. I've lived in other different places. I'm Even though I don't want to be a physician anymore at the time, I want to explore what it would be like to live in New York City. That's literally what I went through. So I reached out to them and they said, oh my gosh, absolutely. Why don't you come and I'll introduce you to 
the the vice chair of research at the time um, at the institution that I'd done the pathway program at, I got a year position to basically a, a research coordinator. That at least plugged me in. And then I stumbled upon anesthesia very late in the game. It, even though it's mandated, you basically do it after your cores. So I ended up doing it towards the end of the third year, but had already made a decision that no matter what, I'm taking a year off just also for a mental break. I ended up loving anesthesia. This all fell in the same time that I had reached out to this person that was a program coordinator for one of the pathway programs in order to do research within an anesthesia department. So it worked out. And then I thought, if I'm in a mental space, I am going to apply for an anesthesia residency. This leads up to one of the key pieces that I think played a huge role, even when you're down, even when you're not sure where to go mentorship, sponsorship, and sometimes reaching out. Because if it took so much effort to reach out to someone who I wasn't sure if they were going to remember me from this program that I did like six years ago or whenever I did it, if they were even going to want to help me, reaching out and saying, remember me, I did this program. I just finished, or I will be finishing medical school soon. I think I'd like to do research there in New York. This is what my interest is. It one thing led to another. One thing led to another. That's how I got pulled back into medicine, where I ended up doing research there. By securing that position, that really motivated me to really try to give anesthesia a shot. So I used one of my fourth year electives to do a visiting away at NYU, where you have to understand in Madison, Wisconsin, there was no one that looked like me that was either a resident or a physician, a faculty attending, nobody that I saw. Then go from there to NYU where I saw two Black women, one who is Haitian, one is Jamaican, who was a a clinical anesthesia second-year resident, and one who was a clinical anesthesia third-year resident. Hmm. That did wonders for what I thought I could do. Hmm. And I leaned on them as mentors, and they were fabulous mentors where as much as I reached out to them for help, they would also lean back into me. And when I actually had matched at NYU, and I think a heavy component of that is really due to them vouching for me after I did my fourth year visiting away elective there. And I did a critical care rotation where I was able to take ownership of patients and really show what I could do when I have a good support system and a a mental well-being that's conducive to being able to do that, that really played a huge, huge role. So, I mean, I would say that it's mentorship, sponsorship, reaching out to people who don't look like you, who actually you'd be surprised at how much they would be willing to help you. And then also reaching out to those who are concordant and you feel that you trust and make you feel like there is a possibility that you can do it. There's a sense, there's something that for me, played in my mind when I saw people who were already doing what I was aspiring to do. Mm-hmm. It made a huge, huge, huge difference in my motivation and my ability to work even harder to, to try to reach it when I saw that there were other people who were already in my pathway and even felt much more reassuring when I'd started at NYU and they both had already graduated and were practicing anesthesiologists. Mm-hmm. And they played a huge role still with mentorship where when I had, again, obstacles that I face as a resident, I could lean on them because they'd already lived through it. And I could tell them my my fears, my concerns, my uncertainties, my insecurities, and they could validate them. They wouldn't gaslight it. They would reassure me. They went through it. And that you can absolutely still 
thrive and really make a huge success of yourself. So I would say those key components, mentorship, sponsorship, I will always keep going back to those. It really expanding the amount of opportunities by just putting yourself out there. You never know what you're going to get. There you have it, folks. Again, the role of mentorship and sponsorship. And if you're confused as to how to gain mentors, how to have this panel of people who, who are ahead of you on this journey, how do you get them to support you, to offer that layer of protection, to help guide you. I'd advise go to our episode called, Can You Be My Mentor? If you're asking, you're doing it wrong. January 9th, 2023. Listen to that episode on how you can have a panel of advisors who adore you. Join us next week as we continue with Dr. Ahi, and she shares with us how to use haters for your advantage. They can help you rather than harm you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sivo Sisters. If you love this episode as much as I did, head on over and rate and subscribe so you don't miss out. New episodes drop every week on a Monday because we all can use a little something, something to get us through the week. Am I right? I'd love to hear more from you on the topics that you want to hear. So let me know in the comments. This is Dr. Peterson signing off. See you next time.